you're a human first and a journalist second, but I think it comes from 20 years of being a field reporter across this country and across the world. I don't see anything. If it doesn't impact me, how do I expect it to impact the viewer? I mean, we really, every single word I write, we're really trying to find why does this matter to the viewer? This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me on the show, we have none other than the chief anchor and senior editor of CTV National News, Lisa LaFlamme. Thank you for taking this time. Oh, David, it's great to be with you. Lisa, we are coming up on the end of 2021. Last year, I remember your year-end broadcast, and you shed some light on some good news. There was a little bit of good news, right? Remind and me. You- remind me what was the good news. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think you were talking a lot about pets and how people have just been flocking to get dogs and cats. In your experience so far in 2021, would there be a similar good news story that you would point to? Funny you should say that because all those pandemic puppies that we all went out and bought last year are now just over a year old. So we are going to commemorate the aging process in this year's uh, year-ender as well. So uh, for viewers, our loyal viewers, we'll get to see some of those dogs and cats as they age. But do we have any good news? I'm sure we we try every day to try to find good news. Some days we have better luck than others. As far as the year itself goes, um, it's it's difficult. (laughs) It's been another tough year, hasn't it? Hopefully you guys can can fool your your heads together and come up with something for that year-end broadcast. You know, it's so daily news, as you know, it is just you're so focused on exactly what is the most urgent thing. What are the most important stories a viewer needs to see? And I realize from so many conversations with so many viewers, they they do want good news. And we, as I say, we we're definitely trying to find a balance. No longer are they solely COVID anymore, which it was for the longest time. So things are changing. Yeah. The kicker story, they call it sometimes, right? The kicker, the closer. And, uh, you know, it's it's a mandatory in the newscast. We do not, especially when a newscast ends right before people go to sleep, you got to have something either poignant or funny. How would you say uh, you guys have pivoted at CTV when it comes to covering COVID? We've learned that sometimes cases don't always compute to as sev- much of a severe worry as necessarily like something, someone being in ICU. Is there a a way that you've gone about covering this pandemic that's different almost 20 months later? It's a really timely question, of course, because of the Omicron variant. It is perhaps more contagious, but less severe. Ontario numbers, Quebec numbers, which are really high right now, or we looked at those Alberta numbers from a month or so ago, you really have to say, okay, these are the people getting infected, but how many are getting sick enough to put a strain on the healthcare system? And that number is decidedly much, much smaller than the earlier waves of this. So there is no doubt about it that the vaccine is making a difference, a dramatic difference to the system, the healthcare system. So I think that would be the key. We absolutely are looking closer at, okay, this is the infection rate, but how many are sick enough to check themselves into a hospital? Oh, that's good. Thanks for clarifying that. I just want to dive into the art of a story for a moment. You spent so many years as a reporter overseas, all over the place, 
there's this impression, I think, that viewers can sometimes gather that reporters live a life of luxury. Could you describe the conditions of working in the field? That always cracks me up when people think, uh, certainly they think television journalism has a hint of glamour to it. There's almost no glamour <laughs> because, uh, first of all, because of time zone differences, you're working almost 20 hours a day. You try to grab a nap wherever you can. But for me personally, I think of war zones and natural disasters and uh, political uprisings. Really, the bottom line is you have to uh, be completely self-contained because you're not going to probably get any sleep. You're probably not going to find any food. You really are focused on the story, so you don't really worry about those other things. But um, it, it's it's incredibly important, I, I will argue, till the cows come home, that we have Canadian eyes, Canadian journalists in these key trouble spots, whatever the story is, that we're not just, um, you know, rewriting copy from agency footage or agency stories. So it means something for us to be able to tell, for example, Afghanistan, which has been a story that's meant so much to me for 20 years, more than 20 years, and especially now with the crisis that started in August. We've done our part as journalists and as humanitarians to try and help people get them out, get them to safety. And it's just not enough. It's too slow. And I get... I can't even tell you how many texts and WhatsApps a day from people saying, I'm still trapped in Kabul. Is there anything? How can you help? Who's going to get us out of here? I worked for Canadian NGO. I worked for Canadian military. Why am I still here? And it is heart-wrenching, to be honest, mm. and it's all-consuming. It's going to take two more years for the government to fulfill its obligation, its promise, rather, of um, bringing in 40,000 Afghans. So it's a very difficult situation. Could you drill down a little bit more on why it's so important to have Canadian eyes on these stories as opposed to syndicating something like ABC or some international diplomat that's not your correspondent? Yeah, absolutely. Let's take Afghanistan, for example. So we had our Canadian troops in there from 2006. I think the combat mission ended in 2012. To see the the focus of the Canadian, I, I always, I should say, in all those years and Iraq for th for three years before Afghanistan, I was always trying to balance the military and the humanitarian side of these stories because it isn't just the military. Canadians care about. It's also the humanitarian efforts because we're such a generous nation with trying to bring education and these sorts of things. But if I'm, I know, for example, tiny little charity in Calgary, Alberta, that launched a simple, what was simple at the time, drive to raise money to hire teachers in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I knew about that. If a, an American journalist or from any other country would never know about this. So I was able to go to Kabul to find the teachers that are hired and, you know, sleeping in their classrooms because it was too unsafe for them to go home. But that is through the benevolence of Canadians. I think we have a focus that is uniquely Canadian and it's only by being on the ground. I see things and I think that, is, that, that speaks to us as a nation 
where it may not speak to a larger populated country or a country that isn't as um, multinational, shall, shall we say. So I, I absolutely believe we, we need to cover stories through the prism of our own history and, and our own experiences. How is this prism changing as Canada becomes more multicultural? Well, that's exactly it. it. It means we as journalists need to be broader. We need to go to places we may never have thought of going before. The situation in Ethiopia, for example. I was in Addis Ababa just before the pandemic, and it was the model for Africa. And now look at the situation there. But it's because we have so many Ethiopian neighbors and friends that we realize this is, these are their family members who are living through this. They bring this angst and, and they want to see what the situation is. I would argue we cover a lot more foreign news uh, because of the, the makeup of Canada than certainly than, than a lot of other countries do and a lot of other sort of um, mainstream newscasts. And it's because it reflects who is in our country and what the things they want to know and we want to know about the global peace situation and the, or lack of it in so many places. Well, that must really keep you on your toes. Yeah, it's it's hard because we only have a 30-minute newscast. I'm saying all the time, we need more time, we need more time, but <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Now, I'm also interested, Lisa, in the lens by which you see news. I understand you grew up with a bit of a Catholic foundation would you say that contributes in any way in how you're seeing the world as uh, the, the chief anchor and senior editor at CTV? I don't think growing up a Catholic has affected the way I I cover news, but I will say that certainly the the abuses within the Catholic Church have been very difficult as a Catholic. The situation with, um, you know, the residential schools and 60% of those schools were run by the Catholic Church, that's extremely difficult for me to know that a church I grew up in had, had a role, uh, did so much damage to so many people. In fact, we were just going to Rome, to the Vatican, with the Indigenous leaders. That trip, of course, has now been postponed because of the Omicron variant and all of these new travel restrictions. But it is it was so incredibly important. We were taking and will ultimately take the whole show to the Vatican because the urgency, and I say urgency, even though it's 154 years of this, of some kind of recognition from the Catholic Church, an ultimate apology from the Pope on Canadian soil means so much to so many in this intergenerational trauma that our Indigenous community uh, across the country have suffered. Mm, really is devastating. Got to be one of the bigger stories of the year, I'm sure, as you are compiling those unmarked graves i i don't know catholics especially who sobbed you know mm -hmm. my own family this is this is uh, absolutely gut-wrenching government church sanctioned kidnappings basically abductions and then the ultimate you know I, it really is heartbreaking it really makes you forces you to reflect on your faith and uh, really ask a lot of questions, let's put it that way. Lisa, when you broadcast, unlike what I think is a, a stereotype that maybe isn't necessarily accurate, but does get tossed out there that news anchors can be very stiff, there's very much this emotional sensitivity in how you convey news. And you're very 
invested and, and moved by the stories that you share. Where do you think that comes from? Mm, uh, well, I guess it's you're a human first and a journalist second, but I think it comes from 20 years of uh, being a field reporter across this country and across the world. I don't see anything. If it doesn't impact me, how do I expect it to impact the viewer? I mean, we really, every single word I write and we every story we cover, we're really trying to find why does this matter to the viewer? And I, I don't know the answer to your question, except I can't help it. It's it's very personal, this job. It isn't a job, actually. I, I've always thought that about being a journalist, having the privilege of traveling the world, covering the worst, at the worst moment of someone's life, you're there. It's so critically important to convey whatever their experience is accurately and fairly. And um, I don't know, that you don't lose that. It's just kind of part of who I am, I guess. And you've done not just so much reporting and anchoring, you've done some huge interviews over your career. And I've heard one thing that you've shared with others people like myself, how to improve is to really focus on the follow-up question. Uh, why, why is that so helpful in an interview? Well, I'll be honest to me, it just, I, I want to scream and I do yell at the TV all the time when <laughs> someone once gave me a foam brick, uh, one year for Christmas. And honestly, it was pretty, pretty good, uh, pretty good tool to use to get rid of some of my energy but I can't stand it when you are you ask a question in an interview but you don't listen to the answer so in that answer there's 10 more questions and especially if you're interviewing a politician for example who is expert at not answering the question you have to keep at it you just keep at it and I think that the follow-up becomes more important than the original question because it's somewhere in their answer or non-answer that leads you. And sometimes it takes four or five times to get an actual answer. But um, that's kind of our job. We're not just lip service, ask five questions that are previously written, get an answer and move on to the next. So I, I say that to all, every time I'm speaking to students or journalists who have been, you know, only in the business a short time, listen, that is our gift to the viewer, the reader, the listener. We listen so that we know where they're going to go with this and then takes the interview in new directions. Well, I want to apply your counsel a little bit. You've touched on a couple of times in our conversation, just how all consuming your, your work is that when you were in the field, you weren't necessarily con considering your sleep or your food as much and that it's not really a job. It's a privilege, but it's like all the time. How do you find balance at all? There's no balance, David. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of balance. i so admire young people who figured out things I certainly, I'm 57 now, did not figure out. Maybe now just having uh, come out of this very serious medical situation, I will hopefully learn some balance, but I can't help it. I mean, that is just the way my, my mind works, you know. you. I, and by the way, I don't think of it as, like I said before, 
even if I didn't work in this, I'm just genuinely interested. So I'd be getting up and reading all the newspapers and following it all anyway and watching the news conferences. But the balance is so critically important and it's something I have never been able to teach young journalists because I never really learned it, even though I know it's so important. And I think I really do believe that this newer generation is better at it, better at limits, putting limits on the workday and what they're willing to lose or give up for a job. But I, I have to say, having said that, I am privileged. I have had an incredibly privileged career of of meeting amazing people and getting their story on the air, get it on the air. And uh that is not something I ever complain about balance because I I have felt lucky to be able to have that role. Speaking of this future generation, I mean, you're more informed on this than I am with TV ratings and so many people no longer sitting around for the 11 o'clock cast that they would have maybe 20 years ago as with, with as much excitement and we're in this Netflix era. Uh, where do you see the future of, of TV news? Well, it's an interesting point, and I am waiting for that to happen. We still, I mean, at the height of the pandemic, we were 1.8 million, 1.6 million a night. Um, we're still over a million a night. Um, knock on my fake wooden panel desk here in my office, but it is, um, we still have an incredibly loyal viewership who obviously, given the fact that there are so many options out there for news, um, they still want, uh, at the end of the day, a 30-minute newscast that's going to tell them the main things that happen in the world that they need to know. And uh, again, I, I am so always so grateful to our loyal viewers. I know it's going to fall off. Of course it is. What's the future? There will never not be a need for storytellers and journalism, ever. Um, what format? it will be delivered in, evolves all the time. It's just a changing world. and um, But the most important thing is there will always be a need. Uh, it's more than a need. Necessity, desire, uh, importance of storytelling and reflecting what's happening around the world. We can't live in that bubble and think it's not there. So, you know, I basically just keep yelling about it <laughs> that sort of thing i also do i also try to do my part for journalists for human rights which is an amazing program mm -hmm. that helps do training missions for journalists in other countries uh, certainly where freedom of the press is just an expression there's no reality to it uh and it's almost a validation because we do need that as well as dangerous as it is in so many countries the role of the journalist is is critically important in society. What do you make of citizen journalism and how that's perhaps matured a little bit in the last couple of decades? Great way to put it. It has matured. We couldn't live without it anymore. It has shone a light on some of the worst atrocities in our own country as far as brutality goes in other countries when a citizen is standing on a street corner with their cell phone rolling as something is unfolding in front of them all eyes i mean in a way we are all we're all living this same existence so 
it's what you do with that footage. And I mean, our efforts to validate footage, to make sure that it, it's, it's, it is what it appears to be, that's then becomes the work of the news team. Because you can't just blindly take any piece of footage or statement off any social media site. So there's, there's legwork involved in validating it. But we can't now, with shrinking news teams, we rely on that footage from people. I couldn't say in every newscast, is there a little piece of video someone just shot on their phone? There might be. I don't know. I've never sort of analyzed it that way, but it's very common now. Hmm. You think about George Floyd even recently, right? Citizen journalism captured that. That is what I'm thinking of, but he isn't the only one. That is where it has really changed the world. Like the whole Black Lives Matter movement grew from someone's cell phone footage. That is an incredibly powerful tool that everybody has in their in their hand, in their back pocket. And, and it, it's, it's so important that it's used wisely, you know. Lisa, I want to finish with uh, the fact that you are a female in what many people consider um, what was a man's field. And you succeeded Lloyd Robertson and uh, you've blazed a trail. I guess your colleague Sandy Ronaldo was the first female anchor in Canada. What kind of waters has it been like to swim up during your tenure? Wow, you're going back a long way because it was 34, almost 34 years I started. It's changed dramatically. Obviously, there were a lot of tough times in the beginning to be um, respected and uh, in certain places. But I was raised uh, four girls, and I think my father raised us like we might have been four boys at times because we were never, ever, ever under the impression that there was anything we couldn't do. And so for me, I just, I never, it never slowed me down. It made me work harder than the person next to me or want it more uh, to, to, to explore places. War zones was a bigger deal because there weren't a lot of women in 2000 and 2000, I'd say. That's grown a lot as well. But, you know, thankfully, we are becoming a more equal representation. Now it's about more diversity. There's, there's, there's new mountains to climb. They're not new, but incredibly important. And I'm hoping that sort of the work that a lot of women my age had to do in the last 30 years, we're there now to help the next group of women as they um, mount their uh, their challenges. So, uh, you know, it's never been something I've, I've let slow me down. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's great. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time. I will just read this uh, quote from, I read Lloyd Robertson's book a little bit earlier this year, and he described you of, of winning the job that you have now on merit her record was there for all to see. The fact that she was a woman was almost incidental. So just validates what you said. Wow, I love that. And I love that man. I have to say, he has been a guide and a mentor for me. Even when I was in local news, I, I looked up to him. I never dreamed I would one day replace him. You don't really replace Lloyd Robertson, but I never. it was never part of my plan to to take over that role and now I've been doing it for over 10 years and it again it is a privilege to do it and and I still love my weekly notes from Lloyd when he gives me his thoughts on the lead story and and, and the show and just things in general he's really been an incredible support for me 
Oh, that's so nice to hear. Lisa, I remember when I was at News Channel, there was this aura when you walked in the room. People knew that you were there, and I sense that even in this conversation now. I appreciate <laughs> maybe I've just all that a, you do. Maybe I just have a big mouse, David, but you're very <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much for your time. All right, have a great Christmas. Bye-bye. And if you want to get to know Lisa LaFlamme a little bit better, you can, of course, watch her weeknights on CTV National. And you can also head to the show notes at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Janine Becky is a forward for Manchester City. She also helped lead Canada to gold at the Summer Olympics. And her brother Drew plays defense for the Ottawa Fury of the North American Soccer League. Both Janine and Drew are keen in following Jesus, and they let this be their identity regardless of the trials that they face in the pitch. Going back to the how I felt this year and, and the, the scary moments, I had peace with it because, one, I have a foundation in Christ, but two, I have so many other qualities that I can I can do if I can't play anymore. For Culture at a Crossroads, I'm David Mann. Thanks for joining us today, and we do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.